Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Boo Radley's Toys, Books, and Gifts for the Quirky Minded, and Atticus, the coffee shop and gift store for the grown-up lurking within, both on Howard, across from the carousel, in downtown Spokane. Welcome to the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. The nationally touring theatrical production of Harper Lee's novel To Kill a Mockingbird is coming to Spokane next week. Later in this episode, we'll talk to Yegel T. Welch, who plays Tom Robinson in Aaron Sorkin's contemporary stage adaptation. First, though, we'll hear from Carolyn Stevens and Robin Dare. Carolyn and her husband Les are lifelong art collectors, and many of the works from their collection are now featured in an exhibition titled Five Critical Decades of Art. It opened this fall at Gonzaga University's Junt Art Museum. Robin is Les and Carolyn's longtime friend, and he's also the curator of this exhibition. He actually played a hand in building Les and Carolyn's collection, which they slowly assembled over 50 years of chance meetings and following their instincts. It now includes work by Robert Maplethorpe, Ed Keenholtz, Keith Haring, and Ai Weiwei. When Robin, Les, and Carolyn came into the studio to talk about five critical decades of art, Carolyn explained their almost magpie-style approach to collecting, especially in the early days. Beautifully made things would catch our eye, even when we were students, undergraduates, not an extra dime in our pocket. We might go to yard sales and see some beautifully carved thing, or as we matured and our education grew, we would seek out folk art, for example, and buy an occasional piece, but we were penny pinchers as students. And do you remember what the first proper piece was in your collection? If we're looking at our show today and identifying a first major purchase for us, so not yard sale art, but rather really a fine piece of art by a notable artist, we were attracted to one particular artist, Thomas Morgan. Still don't know too much about him, but the drawing was special. It was immaculate in terms of its execution. It was attractive in terms of its imagery. And for me especially, I had years of teaching figure drawing and thought, this guy knows how to draw the human form. And so we purchased that, even though we were still a little thin in the wallet. And I'd like to talk about some of those individual pieces that are on display here. But Robin, I want to bring you in and talk to you about your role in bringing this entire exhibition together. Well, I can start out by just saying that I've known Les and Carolyn uh, a long time, going back into the 60s. And um, I was part of our community here in Spokane. A lot of us hung out together and had some great art parties. And um, I was going to school at Eastern um, doing studio work and getting an undergraduate degree. And that's where I uh, know Les and Carolyn from. So um, that early relationship just followed through. And I knew that they were collecting art. And there was times when I would spend some, some evenings with Les 
going on eBay for auctions where we would just nail some really good stuff. <laughs> and he was always asking me, wow, what do you think of this piece? And I'd go, yeah, get it. That's a good price. <laughs> go for it. So I knew of this collection. Uh, the director, Paul, at the Jump Museum asked me, well, do you have any... Uh, offers as far as proposals for exhibitions. I'm the preparator over there, which means I install and I handle the art and I work the walls and paint and I do all kinds of stuff for presentation in exhibitions. Uh, but they kind of keep me in the basement. So uh, <laughs> I, I kind of emerged and said, well, I have a good idea. I know some people have a great art collection. I mean, a really good contemporary art collection. It would be a great exhibition. And so you've got 50 years of pieces. Now, I'm guessing that this is not the entire scope of your collection, that these are pieces that are hand-picked and hand-selected as representative of your collection. That's correct. We do have other works of art, but the pieces in the show they encompass the full five decades. And you're now listening to an instructor of art talking about being a collector <laughs> of art. And I want the viewer to come through and see that in a 50-year period, we're talking essentially the 1970s to the present decade. And so, as I had titled it, a critical five decades, that 50-year period was indeed dramatic and critical in terms of what emerged among mostly American, but contemporary artists, some of them outside of the United States, and that kind of energetic transition to transition to transition, it's notable. The evidence is there often in the feel of that art, the emotional expression of that art. But nonetheless, Les and I collected during those five decades that were important to us. We were also, we started buying art when we were in our 20s until now in our 70s, we're still doing so. So it was good in terms of our maturing and the world of art rolling with us during that period of time. I'd like to highlight a few of the pieces that you think are noteworthy or maybe representative of these transitions that you pointed out. So as we look at what we have collected in this 50-year period, many of our listeners would understand this, that Les had an opportunity to purchase a piece that represents the work of Ai Weiwei. And most of us don't encounter that as we go through our local galleries and museums, but we had an opportunity. We finished our undergraduate work at Whitman College in Walla Walla, and we came to know a young woman who had eventually been employed by Ai Weiwei. So she introduced us to things that were happening on campus, but also to projects where he was building his career, but he also was engaged in working on projects in which an entire city in China, two cities in China, pardon me, they built a work of art that depended on working with porcelain clay, staining that clay, firing that clay, to appear to be the equivalent of an actual sunflower seed. And so he didn't need a dozen of them. He didn't need a thousand of them. He needed thousands of thousands of them. So it allowed us to have access to a little 
couple of handfuls of Ai Weiwei's sunflowers that are just collected and displayed as a couple of handfuls of sunflowers. <laughs> but at the Tate London, it was in a beautiful gallery, enormous field of, of exhibition space. And the artist himself stood deeply in that field of sunflower seeds. I'm not sure I could guesstimate how many sunflower seeds to create a floor of maybe four or five inches deep and then the master artist stood in the middle for a very grand photograph. <laughs> <laughs> so there's these sunflower seeds that are from this larger exhibition. Is there another piece that you would really hope that viewers maybe linger on? I'm going to return to that love for folk art. It was our pleasure to access some folk artworks through a friend of ours who had occasion to live and travel through Virginia, for instance. And so this friend of ours began to purchase works of folk art. He also commissioned an artist to do a folk carving of his own terrier dog. And from that point forward, Les and I made an effort to acquire some of these works that came from the hands of Miles Carpenter. And Miles Carpenter, known now probably worldwide, certainly as a major American folk artist. His work became in part of our collection because we were able to be gifted from our friend's collection to take possession of some of those Miles Carpenter pieces. And that's a really beautiful, small but significant part of the exhibition at the Junt Museum because people can put their noses on the glass and be two or three inches from <laughs> some of the most charming animal carvings to remind us that art making can be just loaded with emotional expression, and much of the folk art pieces are. Uh, I did want to mention uh, what's very interesting about this exhibition is that it's not only this very large eclectic amount or differences in images in art, um, but also representing what you would call a kind of Northwest regionalism. So it, it really gives the viewer a nice chance to see the history going back about five decades of some of the prominent professors who taught from Eastern and WSU and uh, Spokane Falls Community College. And so we bring some of that work into it. Excellent. Well, Robin and Carolyn, thank you so much for coming in today and talking about this. It sounds like, as you mentioned, an eclectic exhibition, but a really interesting and rich one as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That was Robin Dare and Carolyn Stevens giving some background on five critical decades of art at Gonzaga University's Junt Art Museum. That exhibition draws on Les and Carolyn Stevens' private collection of artwork that was assembled over 50 years. It runs at the Junt through January 6, 2024. For more information, you can visit gonzaga.edu forward slash Junt or call 509-313-6843. Art collectors like the Stevens have big names in their collection because they bought pieces when those big names were still small. 
Noelle Bowden is an emerging visual artist who only recently graduated Eastern Washington University with degrees in creative writing and fine arts. But she was just one of two EWU alumni to be selected for a new kind of residency at the Spokane Public Library's creative space called The Hive. As an artist in residence, Noelle is working on a project there that combines abstract works with poetry. Noelle is showing her literary side as our Poetry Moment reader here on Spokane Public Radio this week. But while she was here, we talked about her artwork and this new residency for recent EWU grads. It's called the Emerging Artists Program. Um, so it's all about this transition from post-graduation into the art world. So we're given this space for six months to really just explore our work and ourselves more than we did um, the previous year. And so what exactly does this residency entail? What what are you doing as part of that? As part of the residency, um, obviously making as much work as I can, really exploring myself as an artist in the medium that I'm working in. Um, and, and what medium is that exactly? Um, painting um, and also a little bit of writing, so my poetry as well. And let's talk about this painting. There are two mm-hmm. aspects, as you mentioned. There's painting and there's poetry. Mm-hmm. What materials are you working with? And, uh, you know, are you doing large canvases? Are you even doing canvases at all? I'm working in acrylic medium and also using a lot of pastels, chalks, um, even pencil. And my work that I'm focusing on now is this collection of abstract paintings on found surfaces and so I'm using old antique wall maps and I'm painting on the back of them because they are lined with linen and canvas. So there's this really interesting property to it um, and I like to play with water a lot in my acrylics and so it's kind of like its own reactant (laughs) in the process and so um, I'm exploring that. I really like paper but I'll probably go back to canvas soon. (laughs) And so what property does the linen or the canvas of these maps give your paintings? Well, it gives this like tangible bridge between the feeling I have of poetry. Um, Because you think of writing, you think of paper. There's this very quiet yet curious reaction I get when I'm working with paper um, because you think how it warps and how, how you think it would have to be more delicate or treated more delicate than other um, surfaces. I kind of let it do what it wants to do. Um, So it's speaking on this ephemeral process, this performative side to writing, to engaging with gesture and painting and all of that. And where did you source these maps? And not only that, but is there a certain amount of, maybe this is a uh, a hyperbolic word, but desecration of these old maps, these these historical documents, mm-hmm. um, do you feel as though, oh my word, I'm tainting this historical document mm-hmm. in some respect? Yeah, I was given one to paint on by a professor, and then I found that the historical aspect of it, it has age to it, and so I instantly feel this like comfort 
that it's had a purpose, it's done something, it's served this collective of education. Um, and so I found more from the art department and I've also found some of my own from many um, places around Spokane, anything to do with secondhand stores. But the best ones I've found that have been in an institutional educational um, environment um, because the wall maps are very, they're also different and unique. Um, and that's another thing that I am uh, I treat very delicately is its own unique form um, in um, what that looks like. And what is the viewer of these paintings going to see? Are they going to notice uh, first and foremost color? Are they going to notice first and foremost uh, texture? Are they going to notice first and foremost the the abstract qualities that evokes a certain emotion in them? Or mm-hmm. is it kind of a combination of all of the above? Um, I would say color is a first approach um, and then everything else follows. I really look at uh, gesture is a big part of my work. Um, and what do you mean by gesture? Involving the body as much as you can in its natural I guess you could say reaction. I use an old typewriter to type out my poems. And so that in itself is a gesture of repetition and a very intense motion because it's very old. So looking at my paintings, you'll find there's a lot of of gestural energy, mark making, and oftentimes layers with textures. Um, I try my best to keep my process very like full of momentum um, and so uh, you'll either find a single surface of a brushstroke or you'll find 20. And where do poems factor into all of this? Do they complement the paintings? Do they exist independently of mm-hmm. the paintings? They are interacting with the paintings by either the paintings inspired by the poem or vice versa. Um, Or I just have a poem that I found that resonates with an emotion, but I just paint a color from it. Um, So I'm trying to find this common ground of the natural push and pull that I feel. But oftentimes when I do have a poem in a painting that goes together, uh, I think of it as these two separate but parallel ways to visually communicate. Um, And so oftentimes I feel like I can't verbally articulate the exact feeling that I need from a poem. And so I'll paint it. And if I can't exactly voice it or get it perfectly, I find that my body is doing the speaking for me and it manifests itself through the gesture and through the colors and um, the forms that are showing up. I see. So are you partial to either medium? Or do you say, well, I'm a poet, first of all, or I'm a painter, first of all, or these two sides are indistinguishable, they're both equal parts of me? Um, They're definitely equal, but I did start out with poetry being the first thing, but I realized um, that this whole world of abstraction, especially in painting and art, has a different visual communication that I can't ever communicate to anyone else. And so they really fuel one another. Um, And it's quite fascinating to to see the growth that I've already done by just focusing on them together. (laughs) And last thing, does this residency or the exhibition that you kind of are, are developing, does that have a title? Is it paintings and poems or is there something a little more creative than that? Oh, hopefully it'll come from a poem, a title. My 
poetry, poetry and paintings are kind of like this narrative visual mosaic. So I'm interested to see like by the end what we'll piece together to really be able to word what I, what the work is. <laughs> yeah, because ultimately the poetry does kind of take priority over the painting because you have to come up with some verbal way of describing totally. what you're doing. Totally, yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, Noel, thank you so much for coming in today and thank talking you for about me. this. Noelle Bowden there talking about the new Emerging Artists Residency at The Hive and the work she's doing as part of that. You can hear Noelle reading this week during our Morning Poetry Moments segment, and you can check out her work by going to The Hive during open studio hours. Visit spokanelibrary.org forward slash The Hive to find out more. And now we come to one of the most popular books of the 20th century, To Kill a Mockingbird. The playwright, filmmaker, and TV showrunner Aaron Sorkin wrote a contemporary Broadway stage adaptation of Harper Lee's novel that's currently touring nationally. That production comes to Spokane's first Interstate Center for the Arts next week, and I had the chance to speak by phone with the actor Yegel T. Welch, who plays the character of Tom Robinson. In the play, as in the book, Robinson is on trial for a crime he couldn't possibly have committed. His defense lawyer is Atticus Finch. Given that the novel has already been adapted for film, stage, and even a graphic novel, I asked Diego what makes this To Kill a Mockingbird so distinctive. It's sort of like a, a slice of life of To Kill a Mockingbird. You get a lot of the same quirky little scenarios that you have in the novel and the movie, but it sort of narrows it down to the section in the book that is the trial and conviction of Tom Robinson and how that affects the Finch family. Sort of the genius of our wonderful playwright, Aaron Sorkin, who sort of was just, uh, I guess, tuning into what our world was vibrating with. And as an actor, do you feel that that strips you of a little bit of space for character development? Or do you feel as though, or maybe one of the pleasant challenges is to retain that character development and that character arc within these, uh, this slightly different To Kill a Mockingbird? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because w what I would argue is that Tom is given a little more agency in the Aaron Sorkin version, but it still is To Kill a Mockingbird uh, in the sense that uh, the black characters, Calperny and Tom, we hear from them, we get their perspective more, they have more of an effective voice and power, um, and that's just what Aaron Sorkin was committed to doing, and he did so really well. Uh, but... It is a story um, about a coming of age of a Southern single father and his children, essentially, because it was written by a Southern white girl um, who had a father who was a lawyer. And so it essentially uh, tacks onto that. But what we do have in this particular rendition of the play is more agency. The African-American characters get more agency in their own um, storytelling, which is a, a great benefit. And you've talked in previous interviews about empathy as a motivating force that got you into acting in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. And I would say that this is sort of the perfect play or the embodiment of empathy because empathy is required for so many of its characters, even the villains, even the vilest among them. There's an empathetic hook that's necessary to just kind of understand them as humans. So is this, is To Kill a Mockingbird sort of a, a realization for you of that that empathetic motivating force 
Yeah, you know, the brilliant thing that Harper Lee did with this story was um, create a character named Atticus Finch who is so supremely empathetic and, and just. Um, he is fictional. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this fictional man inspired so many people to become lawyers and um, work for social justice simply because of the ideals that he sort of held up that said, uh, we have to do what's right for people because it's right. We have to care because if it's happening to them, it's happening to me. It could happen to me. It could happen to my children. So let me stop it at the root. And that's pretty much where Attica Finch lands. And I think that that's ultimately um, ultimately the, the main point at the core of the book. You know, in this unjust world, Atticus could go on with his life, you know, like nothing is wrong. It's not his fault that um, somebody's being falsely accused of rape, but he instead he chooses to defend them for free because it's his only chance of keeping this man alive. And the least he can do is try. And I think from that, um, though though there's not a lot of success in, in, in the trial because of the times, I think, though, in that, it does ignite change. You know, change happened slowly, but it did happen. Um, and I think Atticus Finch essentially uh, inspires young readers from all over to challenge themselves to be more empathetic. And on that note, what of yourself are you bringing to the character of Tom Robinson? Um, Tom Robinson is a black man uh, at the age of 25 in 1934 who's been falsely accused of rape, a crime he couldn't have possibly committed. He has now been arrested and is in jail and has been in jail for seven months at the time that our, that our tale starts and he's on trial to either die or serve 18 years more. And I've grown up in America all my life. And I, you know, my, my relatives uh, have experienced a lot um, with the hands of the law. I, I wasn't raised to trust um, the law at all times. In fact, I was raised to the exact opposite to fear the law. I obeyed the law so much out of just fear of the law turning against me. Uh, when I say the law, I mean like police officers. I mean uh, systematic justice. Um, and I, I strongly and deeply empathize with the struggle of Tom Robinson and the Tom Robinsons out there. Um, and, and they connect so recently because if you look at what happened with George Floyd in 2020 or Tamir Rice or what happened with Trayvon Martin or what happened with Breonna Taylor, you know, there's just so many stories of young people of color being you know, unjustly mishandled at the hands of the law. Um, and so I empathize and I get to bring all of that earnestness and empathy to this particular role because it's an important story and it's an important, um, it's not to blame anybody, but it's to make people aware. So I think we can empathize and I get to bring that to the part because I, I think it's an actor's dream to get to do something that is uh, artistically challenging and socially relevant. And this is a story that many of us are familiar with from, you know, encountering the book in school or seeing the movie. And it's one of those pieces of literature, or those, those works that I think everybody assumes that they know what the message is. Um, how would you counter that? Or what does this production bring to that or add to that that maybe casts a new light so that audience members leave reflecting on something? You know, I think we're more apt in 2023 going on 2024 to accept realities. Like, I think it's interesting. I never really understood growing up reading the book To Kill a Mockingbird to be sort of a queer story. Of course, now I know that 
Harper Lee herself was a, a lesbian um, and, you know, had a partner uh, most of her life. But I also know that, you know, she based one of the lead characters, Dill, off of her friend Shumu Capote, who was a gay man. Um, and so, like, it's interesting in 2023 how we can just address those things. Oh, that makes sense in a way that I probably wouldn't have when I first read the book in the 90s. Um, <laughs> I also think, uh, um, as I said uh, earlier, To Kill a Mockingbird manages to be um, a coming-of-age story still, but I think Aaron Sorkin's genius was, again, highlighting um, the social inequities and injustices that were happening in the story and really layering them on top in a way where we can't deny it, especially considering what's happened in America in the past 10 years. So I think what I get from To Kill a Mockingbird now, just to, um, I guess, speak more concisely, is that To Kill a Mockingbird is interestingly a really well-rounded depiction of where America was and what America might still be dealing with and also where America might want to go. And I think that that's why this book resonates. Well, Yegel, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out on a really busy tour schedule to chat about this and yeah, talk about To Kill a Mockingbird in general, but also your character of Tom Robinson. Oh, very much my pleasure. Thank you for the thoughtful question. That was Yegel T. Welch the actor who plays Tom Robinson in the Aaron Sorkin adaptation of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, which also stars Richard Thomas. The nationally touring play runs at Spokane's first Interstate Center for the Arts from December 5th through December 10th. Tickets are at firstinterstatecenter.org or broadwayspokane.com. This has been the Thursday Arts Preview a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the art scene throughout the Inland Northwest. Subscribe to the Thursday Arts Preview podcast on major platforms like Spotify and Google and Apple Podcasts. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm E.J. Ionelli. Thursday Arts Preview receives support from Boo Radley's Toys, Books, and Gifts for the Quirky-Minded and Atticus, the coffee shop and gift store for the grown-up lurking within, both on Howard, across from the carousel, in downtown Spokane.